Hey everybody, Mark's my name. I'm glad you're here joining us today. Today we're going to talk about restoring broken relationships. And some of you may want to take some notes on this. And you can get those notes on cachurch.info. I hope that would be helpful for you. There are many things that I greatly dislike in life. One of those things is when my car breaks down. The cars don't usually ask for permission to break down. They just do, and usually at inconvenient times and places. How many of us know what to do in, for our car leading up to a breakdown? Well, that's it. I want to make an, a point here and, 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 and draw, a, draw a parallel between car breakdown and relational breakdown. So how many of us know how to deal with our car leading up to the breakdown? There's a usual progression that takes place, starting with what we could call denial. Denial is when we tell ourselves, we don't hear that loud knocking sound coming from the front of the car. Usually we need to say that very loudly to go over top of the loud knocking sound in the front of the car. And then we keep driving, hoping the noise will magically just go away. Now, most of the cars have what is called an engine light, which means you have an engine, but there's something wrong, there's a problem. And then it starts blinking. Very hard to ignore it at that, that, at that point. Then your car gets real bad, it usually just stops. So that's when many people raise the hood and look inside. They have no idea what they're looking for, but they find a, a, an engine in there and there's a problem. Some might ask Jesus to uh, heal the car. Others will tow it to a mechanic someplace and, and get it fixed. This is when we have to deal with, at times, judgmental attitudes of mechanics who ask us things like, have you read the manual on this car? Which is usual response, I didn't know there was a manual for the car. Sometimes we are asked, have you done the regular maintenance on the car? To which we reply, I don't know how to spell maintenance. Okay, let's pull this thing together. Can you see the similarities? Many times we treat our cars the way we do to rebuild broken relationships with people. We ignore. We go the other way. We blame someone else. Um, we get Jesus. We hope that Jesus will magically fix it all. And we all, we think, well, this is going to cost me too much. Is it worth it? There is a truth here. There is a manual that Jesus, of Jesus' words for us to follow and fix the relationships in our lives. And we're responsible to do our part in restoring broken relationships. Not everything, but our part in that. Now, let me remind you, sometimes we don't understand that we have hurt people because of a lack of sensitivity. It struck me a while back that I was going uh, to ask all of us to get into a community group. And then when we're in community groups, many times relationships break down and develop uh, patterns that they shouldn't have. So it struck me, I need to do an address on the importance of relational breakdowns. Because the truth is, when people get together, or they will probably disappoint each other or hurt each other. And so we need to know how to deal with this. Either way, we need to be prepared how to deal with relational breakdowns before they happen. A number of years ago, I had a funeral that I was doing, and at the graveside, there was all of us that were there, and there was a single man standing off a ways, maybe being able to hear, I wasn't sure, but he was standing there. It was, it was odd. And after we, we closed the graveside service, and we were just being quiet around that place, I saw him still standing there, and I thought, I, I need to talk to him. For, for what reason, I don't know. I went over, and as soon as I was close to him, he started to cry, and he stood, we stood in silence for a long time. And then he said, he was my friend. We had a fight over 20 years ago. Things were said, he got angry, I got angry, and I chose not to speak to him ever again. And now I'm so sorry because I can't fix the relationship. I would wish that on no one today. 
The Bible text behind this whole thing today is Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So what do you do and what do I do when we get stuck in a broken relationship? Please turn to the two texts today. Both of them are in the book of Matthew where Jesus is quoted to say some amazing wisdom that I think applies to us. Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 18. In chapter 5, 23 and 24, it says, If you hurt the other person, go make it right. In Matthew 18, 15, it says, If the other person has hurt you, go and make it right. Either way, we go and make it right. Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Please stand if you are able. Matthew, Matthew 5, starting in verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your, a brother has something against you, leave your gift in the front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. And now Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him your fault, show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen then, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector." I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two are on earth agree to anything and ask for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Lord, teach us what this means. As difficult as this message is today, I pray you would help us say obey and follow you in this. Thank you that you are the great reconciler, the great forgiver. May we be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Today I'm indebted to a couple of, uh, actually three great authors, William Backus, uh, John Ortberg, and Neil Anderson. A couple of comments as I begin this message. I have no single event or person or persons in mind as I'm speaking today. I decided to speak about this about five months ago. So if anyone here thinks that I'm preaching to them or using them as an example, I'm not doing that. This may be the most difficult message I may have ever spoken to you about. I had some of the horrible, I know of the, some of the horrible pain that many of you have been through in addressing broken relationships and trying to do certain things and it didn't help and it just went south. And I understand that what I say uh, may hurt you a bit. It isn't meant for that. Many of you need extra time and space because your broken relationship is with an abuser. Go real easy on yourself there. That's another whole area I'm not even directing today. But, but, but some of, the, of you and I need constant reminding of the application of what Jesus is asking us to do. So buckle up, we're going to look at five principles to restore broken relationships. And I call them life principles because when we restore relationships, it leads us in spiritual life. We must, we must get honest, number one. We must get honest and acknowledge that there is a conflict. Many families play this are you grumpy game to avoid being called grumpy. Yours might be one of those. At the end of the day or whatever else we say, so are you grumpy? Oh, no, I'm not a grumpy. Are you grumpy? We answer as if being grumpy is the unpardonable sin, but truthfully, grumpiness is part of being honest. And the fact is, when we're around people, some are going to make us grumpy. Simple as that. In Matthew 5, Jesus says to us, 
Be authentic with God and with others and yourself. We need to be honest. Have you noticed the number of families that fight on the way to the church all the way up the hill and suddenly get transformed as soon as they pull into the parking lot? At that point, oh, they're all smiles. Everything is fine. Parents are often dealing with bickering kids and everything else, but when they drive into the parking lot, they pretend all is well. First and foremost, if we're going to deal with relational breakdown, we have to say there's a problem. Often we lie to God and to ourselves and to others, trying to be the perfect family or whatever. Uh, Proverbs 17, 17 says, siblings are born for adversity. One key reason we have siblings is so we can learn to fight right, not wrong, but fight. And we, we learn to fight right in the family. And therefore, later when we're at work or teachers or we're neighbors or whatever else, we learn relational uh, cues to people. That means family is, is a place to learn to forgive each other, not a place of revenge, a place for relationships to grow, not abuse. Sadly, it's easier for some people, though, to fake it and go the other way. Many of us have very different ways of dealing with conflict, but the priority is first to be honest with ourselves and others. You know, one of the neat things I was learning when I was dealing with the Jewish culture and learning and studying over there a little bit, it, was, it taught me that if, if some of these folks think you're a real twit, they just ignore you. You see, pushback for a Jewish person is life. And I make you better and you make me better when there's pushback. But if I don't like you, I, don't, I just ignore you. And because and, you're not worthy of my time or effort. That's how the, it goes. And I think it's, it, it, it really means that a person is growing when there's pushback together. They respect each other. And each other, one sharpens the other. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person will sharpen another. A long time ago when Diane and I were still visiting, I'm still visiting, sorry, uh, well, Diane and I were still dating. Um, uh, she visited our farm, and um, she heard us talk to each other. In her mind, we're fighting. In our mind, we're just getting done. And I had to learn a lesson way back there. And by the way, she's right. When we belittle people or in our hurriedness confront people quickly, it's wrong. And I had to learn, if I'm going to be with her forever, I need to change the way I talk, and I need to change the way I hear her talk to me. Matthew 25, verse 23, in essence says that if you are hurt by a person, be honest with yourself and, and honest with the other person. And, and by the way, you need to be honest about the amount, am I responsible to fix it? Am I responsible for it being broken? Matthew 18 says the same thing. When a person has hurt us, be honest with ourselves. We're not the total problem, but maybe we're a little part responsible for this. This leads us to the second point. We must take the initiative to be first to go to the other person. Now, this flies in the face of the usual angry thought, I'm not talking to that person. I'm not taking that first step to reconcile. I always have to do that. You let him come to me, and it goes nowhere. Why do I always have to take the first step to say I'm sorry. Well, it's, maybe it's because the other person's a little more boneheaded than you are, and you need to go and make it right. I want you to notice Jesus' teaching here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go. If you sin against your brother, go. There's a key word there in both cases. Take the initiative and go. Secondly, some people will never take the first step, and if you don't, they will never be at peace with you. God asks us to take the first step towards reconciling and make things right. 
just like he's been doing ever since Adam and Eve. He reconciles us. He comes to us first. He draws us into that relationship. I want you to notice in Matthew 5, even if we're in the middle of the worship service, wow, even then, even when we're talking to God, even then, pause, pause it all and go make things right. It says in verse 23, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar in the middle of a worship service and remember your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there and go make it right. In essence, God is saying, put me on hold and go talk to and re reconcile to a brother and sister. That is more important than you coming and worshiping me, God says. Wow, there's not many places in Scripture where God says, stop praying and do something else. Set things right in your relationships. That's what God wants. And that's what He does in worship. Lastly, Matthew 5.25 says, Settle grievances quickly. Not only do we take the initiative, and not only do we go quick, we need to go quickly as well. No longer stewing on something that really just makes it harder to correct. Jesus' approach was never said, Oh, I'll get back to him later. He always took the initiative on people. Number three, we must go directly to the person who hurt us, not to other people. If your brother, Matthew 18, 18, 15, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Go, just between. This underlines the whole process in meeting together is to reconcile, not badmouth somebody. That little phrase, just between the two of you, I think is really key because it separates those who really want to reconcile from those who want to take another swipe at a person. Because if they go to other people, they're trying to get a crowd so that some else, someone else will be uh, open to my point of view. And we talk sometimes about how demonic the other person is and how angelic and righteous we are. Our tendency is to stay here and not go. And many of us would rather just pout then go. God wants us to go. That oh poor me attitude and saying that we're suffering for righteousness sake just doesn't hold water. <clears throat> for many of us, the number one reason of avoidance of the other person is that we're afraid. Fear to confront often holds us back and if we do not go or will not go, it may become toxic in our lives and in our relationships that spreads to other people that destroys churches. Years ago when I was a teenager, I was helping a friend of mine build his house and he had this new toy gun. It was an air-driven nail gun. Now they're everywhere, but back then that was a new deal. And I had no idea how to run this thing. He put me on the air gun and I was shooting around and doing different things. I wrongly drove a nail through my hand into a two by six with a nail about that long. You'll only do that once, I hope. As I pulled the nail out of my hand, I, it, it must have left uh, pieces of treated metal off the nail in my hand, and it got quickly infected. And I didn't want to be known as the Yahoo that didn't know how to reuse the gun, and so I just uh, tried to ignore it. It just about cost me my arm. It got into my arm and went up my arm, and, the in, and, and I was too proud. And when we are proud and will not humble ourselves, we might die spiritually. The same thing needs to happen in our hearts. We need to go to the other person, not to others, just to that person, and fix it. Wrongly, some of us share prayer requests on the way as we go. That's wrong. Oh, God, have mercy on this Yahoo. 
That reveals our natural tendency, which is I don't go alone. I want to round up a bunch of supportive friends to go with me. Don't implicate others with some information and gossip on your way in the process. That complicates and exaggerates and prolongs things, and, and it may even make the problem way harder to fix. Now, if they do not listen to you, then the next step, Jesus said, would be in verse 16. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If the person does not listen to you, we are to take one or two eyewitnesses with us. They've seen what happened. They know what's going on. What we're looking for here is factual, correct perspective to be corrected. As many times, hurt leads our emotions the wrong way into a wrong way of thinking and wrong assumptions. We don't take more people with us to gang up on the person. We take strategic people who are in the know, like elders or pastoral staff, maybe a counselor, and so they can investigate what happened, and everyone can get some understanding that we and what really is the problem we need to unpack. Now, in Matthew 18, 16, Jesus says, referring back to the text in Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. By the way, that text was God's giving us the process to Moses for people who are wrongly accused by others. Interesting. In essence, this has become a serious enough issue, so we call people strategic people, like one or two elders. First informers, yes, but then we call elders to untangle these, these, these type of, of things in our lives. Now, please, there's no clock on run, uh, running on this. This is where we, we don't hurry, we don't push people through forgiveness, especially sins of abuse, which is going to take much more time for wounded people to be able to process. Forgiveness is a choice, not a feeling. I have forgiven people myself and had uh, all my, if, again, and it was against all my feelings. We lead, because they will often lead us the opposite way. Very difficult. So we go slowly and we give especially wounded people gracious space and time but we go. Matthew 18, 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen to even the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If the person who actually hurt someone, Matthew 18, 15, or the people are wrongly making an accusation against the person, Deuteronomy 19, if they do not repent and be restored, then the next step is to expand the strategic people who are in the know. Tell it to the church. In our denomination, that means it, we tell it to our, all of our elders and probably our staff. Not to be announced in a public meeting to beat people up or belittle them because they're unrepentant. Get this. To treat them as an unbeliever, it says, or a tax collector, is to love them, not smack people. This is not seen to be a time to be mean, hoping, hoping that our meanness as a church will draw people back to us and Jesus. No. Jesus never did that. In fact, he loved sinners. So must we, even in the mess of all of this. Matthew 18, 18 then says, Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is a call for those of us who are in the process to remind the person of the fault and move to what is called binding and loosing. Binding and loosing is about declaring over people what they have already asked for. Those who have repented and have asked for forgiveness, forgiveness will flow. 
Forgiveness will be applied. Sins will be loosened from them. Wrongs done are cut free from their soul. Grace is declared. Forgiveness flows. If the person involved will not forgive or repent or be reconciled, then their decision is to have their sins bound to them, and they will not be forgiven of their sins and other sins. I cannot easily explain the terrible place this puts the unforgiving person in their own spiritual life. It is a personal call back to grace, back and away from evil and back to grace. This also speaks of the authority of those who are involved with, the, with such activity. The ramifications of doing this wrong is powerful. Watch how this is handled and how wonderful it is when grace wins, when forgiveness wins, when people are asking for forgiveness and the person in authority can look them in the eye and say, you are loosed of this sin. I have done this and I've seen the weight of sin come off people. It's wonderful when grace flows. You are forgiven because of what Jesus did for you on the cross, because of your humble repentance. Now go in freedom and forgiveness that only God can give you. Unforgiveness is seen by many pastors as the number one reason that Christians are held in spiritual bondage. They are not forgiven because they've refused to forgive. This binding and loosing is what local elders and pastors and spiritual leaders do as we walk in forgiveness and invite you to walk with us in forgiveness and unity. Back to Matthew 18, verse 19. Again, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about anything, then ask for it. It will be done for you by them, by their, my Father in heaven. When we go through this process and repent or give repentance, when we pray, God listens. Why? Because he's in the business of forgiveness and restoring others. He listens to our concerns and takes us very seriously because we are on his team to create unity with people. Verse 20, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. This is not, we're gonna, we gotta have two or three people come or God doesn't show up to our meeting. That's not it at all. That's not it at all. Jesus shows us that, that, that the stuff that God applauds and shows up for those meetings is forgiveness and reconciliation. He loves that stuff. Not stop praying until God shows up. That's not it at all. God gets really close to to those who help others and repent. He gets real close to people proclaiming forgiveness and desiring to live in unity. The Apostle Paul, he dealt with two women who locked in into a disagreement in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. I plead with Eodia, and I plead with Syneche, I think that's how you say it, to be, the same, be of the same mind in the Lord, Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended in my side in the case of the gospel, along with Clement and all the rest of the co-workers whose names are in the book of life. This is where two women were, were in conflict. We don't know what it was. I think it was because both their names were goofy. Something was going there that, that he calls the other people of the church to help them reconcile. Not pick sides. But get these two women to agree in the Lord. There's a principle here. None of us are above this. All of us need to be forgiven and have others help us forgive others. All of us. We need each other. These two women were leaders in the church, which reminds me that all of us are suspect to hurting others. The text does not say we must agree on everything, but agree in the Lord. And then to agree to disagree agreeably. 
on all the other things. We're not going to fight about the color of, of uh, carpet. We're not going to fight about certain things. But there's certain things that are, it's the good fight that we will get in. Another translation says, don't sweat the small stuff. Simple as that. So what do we do when we go to the other person? This is where Bacchus was, was helpful for me. We must discuss the problem, talk about what really happened. There are two thoughts here. Number one, we need to go with the attitude of openness. Maybe I am more wrong than I thought I was. Secondly, we need to go directly and name the problem, not talk around it, not hint about it, but talk about it. Now, as Canadians, we're not good at this. We often try to soften things up. We don't want to be seen as pushy, of course. So sometimes we get very non-confrontive and dance around the issue, and it's never put on the table. Bacchus, in his book, Telling Yourself the Truth, states that when we are at odds with the other person and you uh, want to restore the relationship, there are some things that ha has to be done for that to happen. Number one, talk openly about what was done. Number two, how did this hurt me and you? Number three, what are the consequences to this? And number four, what change would we like? If you walk through those four things, you'll get to the kernel of what's going on. And there can be the start of reconciliation. And I remind you here of Romans 12, 18. Again, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. In Acts 15, the apostle Paul and Barnabas, two of the leaders of the early church, had a fight and took some time apart. There's nothing wrong with taking some time apart. They got together. They talked it through. They each went their own way. And it was better for a while to get some space between them. Today, that may be exactly where you are at. So today, we have spoken of four keys to restore relational breakdowns. Number one, we must be honest and acknowledge that there is a conflict. Number two, we must take the initiative and be first to go to the other person. Number three, we must go directly to the other person who's hurt us, not to other people. Number four, we must discuss the problem. Talk about what really happened. Be open about that. Now there's a last one. Fifth point is key. We must do all of this for the goal of reconciliation. We're not here to prove who's righter or wronger. We're here to restore and reconcile. Now let me illustrate by applying this to something that happened in my world. Let me start by asking this. Have you ever really got it wrong when you were driving? I did. I was not paying attention. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time going the wrong way. I'll leave it at that. I was really wrong. And then I saw a guy in another car that wanted to declare truth to me. And he said something about, I'm some kind of an idiot. What kind of an idiot? Well, I didn't know how to answer. I didn't know there were different kinds of idiots. Simple as that. I, I was confused by this. Then he was, continued to talk to me, yelling an awful, he used Jesus' name an awful lot, and he used a certain hand gesture an awful lot. And then he, when that was over, he was yelling and done that, he got back in his car and drove away. His goal was never to help me restore a healthy traffic relationship. No, he simply wanted to belittle me and rub it in on how stupid I was. I knew that. Now, did this man do what we have spoken about today? Let's go through the points. Was he honest in acknowledging that there's a conflict? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very, very open on that one. Did he take the initiative to be the first to go right to me? Yes, he did. Did he go directly to the person? He didn't go to other people around in cars. He didn't do that either. He went straight to me. Fourthly, did he discuss the problem and talk about it so we could actually make it help? No. And the last and most important thing is this. 
Did he do all of this for the goal of reconciliation? No. He didn't want to reconcile. He just wanted me to feel bad. And he did a good job. You see, folks, we can do all the things we've done, we've talked about here before, all the other four points, if we get it wrong on this one, if we don't really want to reconcile, then in going to them, it probably is going to make things worse. The point that Jesus was getting at here is we need to reunify by forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. The aim of our heart is never to hurt the person, it's to help the relationship. If it helps them to reconcile, if that's their goal, then God will probably help us in that. But if we go simply with an attitude, it'll probably escalate the conflict and we'll need, we'll, we'll find more broken down relationship. Back to our first text. Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I know this has been a difficult text, and it's difficult to work out. But when we go, we will go knowing God goes with us. I'm praying for you these days, these weird days of COVID, and, and, and many times with all the pressure that's going on, relationships are getting broken. This will help us pull our unity back together. Amen. Amen. Lord, help our people. Help the people of our church to be peacemakers. They need courage to do this. They need moxie to do this. They need to know that you take this seriously and we need to go gently with each other. And so, Lord, we pray that our church would continue to be unified and peace-filled we pray your shalom over our church and each one of us. And we pray that we would be people given to reconciliation, forgiveness, and grace. And you would be given glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you.